America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. I now have the pleasure of introducing an old friend, member of the Jews United Executive Committee and a pillar of Los Angeles politics for nearly 50 years. He's been a city councilman and a county supervisor with authority over a jurisdiction with nearly 10 million residents. That's more than 39 states' population. He's now a professor at UCLA, Zev Yaroslavsky. He'll introduce this evening's guests and our moderator. Zev? Thank you, David. Thanks for reminding me it's been 50 years. <laughs> uh, good evening to everyone and good day in Australia. Uh, we're honored this evening to have a true public servant who immigrated to the United States from Ukraine as a youngster, enlisted in the United States Army where he became a career officer, and served our country with exceptional courage and integrity. Alexander Vindman served as a military attache in both Kyiv and Moscow before moving to the White House and the National Security Council, where he served as Director of Europe for European Affairs. Alexander came to national attention in October 2019 when he testified before the United States Congress on the Trump-Ukraine scandal. His riveting account and detailed revelations of those events provided key evidence that led to the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, since his last appearance with us, he's visited Ukraine to assess the status of the brutal conflict launched by Russia, and that is now more than a year and a half long. Uh, a lot has happened since then. His expertise on Russia and Ukraine make him one, one of the go-to people on all things Ukraine. His presence here tonight could not be more timely. And to lead the conversation this evening is a frequent interlocutor at American Crossroads. Larry Mantle is the longtime host of Air Talk, National Public Radio's flagship news program on LAist, formerly known as KPCC. He has been awarded just about every award for excellence in his profession. At more than 30 years, he is the longest serving radio host in Southern California radio. And Larry is as trusted a journalist as there is, a person who I've whom I've described as the Walter Cronkite of public radio. So, Larry, I turn it over to you. Zev, thank you so much. Uh, really means a lot, uh, those kind words coming from you, someone who served Angelinos for so many years, and I appreciate it very much. It means a lot. Thank you also to David and to Janice, to uh, Mel Levine as well. It's such a pleasure to be able to come to you with these programs and with the extraordinary range of guests that are part of weekly viewing on America at a Crossroads. As we just heard from Zev, the timing could not be better for the reti retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel to join us to talk about events in Ukraine. I'm looking forward to your questions uh, for Alex Vindman later this hour. I ask, would you please uh, put your location along with your first name in the Q&A with your question? It's just nice to share with others where you're watching the program and where your question is coming from. So please do that. We've had an uh, extraordinary series of events just today in Ukraine. And yet again, the events of the day align with the program America at a Crossroads. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Kyiv to assess Ukraine's three-month-old counteroffensive against Russian forces. 
Uh, he also announced a billion dollars in new U.S. funding for Ukraine, including military and humanitarian aid. It's Blinken's fourth visit to the country, and concurrent with this visit, a Russian missile tore through an outdoor market in eastern Ukraine near the front line in the Donetsk region. It was one of the deadliest aerial attacks of the war. 17 people were killed today and at least 32 wounded. The price to the Ukrainian people is extraordinary. Uh, and we're going to be talking about what the human cost of the war is, as well as the U.S.'s role, of course, with aid. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being with us this evening to talk about this important issue. We appreciate it very much. Thanks, Larry. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, Zev, David, Janice, Jews United for Democracy and Justice, and uh, the, the program America at a Crossroads. Uh, looking forward to having this conversation uh, after about 18 months or so. I think last time we spoke was in April of 2022. That's great. And, and now you hold her of a doctorate from Johns Hopkins in the intervening period. Congratulations on that. Uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going slower than supporters had hoped. To what extent is Ukraine, Ukraine gaining ground? There's some who say it's it's employing a bite and hold strategy and that maybe um, the gains are greater than would first be obvious. What do you think? It sounds like you read Mick, uh, General Mick Ryan's article in uh, Foreign Affairs. Uh, you know, there are different measures for success um, in, in an offensive. Uh, I think part of the strategy here, everybody's focused on kind of uh, something that maybe not may not be the most relevant factor right now, the retaking of ground. I think that's the ultimate goal. The objective is to liberate Ukrainian territory break the Russian land bridge connecting um, by land uh, Russia, Russian territory to Crimea. But in order to get there, the intermediate objective, what in the military we'd call the center of gravity, is really destroying Russian form ground formations, uh, reducing Russia's ability to overwatch very, very complex obstacles con consisting of uh, dragon's teeth, these kind of uh, fortifications, um, tank ditches, minefields, that only really is effective if there are troops to do so. And Russia is uh, losing scores of troops a day. Ukrainian estimates say about 500 troops a day. If you do that over the course of a month, that's 15,000 troops a month. That is a massive amount of losses. The Ukrainians are taking some losses too, not, not quite uh, nearly as much, about a third or a fourth of those casualties, but still taking uh, some significant casualties. But this is this is what's referred to as attritional warfare. So the Ukrainians are grinding down Russia's forces, making relatively modest gains uh, territorially, but making significant gains in reducing Russia's combat power. We're now seeing the tipping point, what likely looks like the tipping point in this confrontation, where the Russians are just running out of the, 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 the forces to be able to defend these positions. And the Ukrainians are starting to pick up uh, critical pieces of territory breaching obstacle belts, uh, breaching defensive lines, and that it'll start to accelerate over the course, to, from my expect, uh, expectation, is that it'll start to accelerate over the course of, of the coming weeks, and we'll see the Ukrainians actually hit some markers uh, that, that'll, that'll probably be appealing to the general public. 
just just to clarify, then, are, are you saying that what the Ukrainian counteroffensive is really designed to do is that de- degradation of troop numbers and, and fortifications? It's really not about gaining, gaining ground or or is is the intent to gain ground and you think that would be better delayed until more inroads are made into Russian military strength? It's the it's the latter. It's the fact that they ultimately do want to achieve uh, territorial gains. Uh, the most notable would be reaching, like say, the city of Melitopol, which would give them basically the give them the ability to cut the land bridge. But you can't do that. There's no kind of magic trick that you can do. There's no quick lightning warfare that you know we we uh, in America got comfortable with after watching Desert Storm One and Desert Storm Two. Uh, where you know the, the U.S. was able to to break break through enemy lines and uh, really advance on on Baghdad, there is no silver bullet like that. The forces are much more closely matched. The Ukrainians don't have air power. Um, it is a much much more, and it's a very very different kind of war. The, the Russians remain a formidable force. In order to achieve those territorial gains, you need to break the Russian military. And that's the phase that we're in. Even two months into this counteroffensive, we're still in this phase, but we're starting to see indications of a shift to the potential for maneuver warfare, for the Ukrainians to maneuver behind the, uh, these fortifications and start to liberate uh, larger squads of territory. What, what is the extent of Ukrainian offensive air power? We'll talk about air defenses in a moment, but offensive power from the air. There is no, there is no, uh, uh, there is no conventional air power capability. There are no planes that the Ukrainians have per se. What the Ukrainians have done is they've innovated um, and uh, taken kind of a, a relatively nascent technology, drone warfare, and um, and applied it to to a major uh, ground war. Uh, they're producing hundreds and hundreds of drones that allow them to um, to fly over. Mainly in two different areas, really. The tactical formations, these would be some footage that you see of drones flying over troops and dropping grenades. Those are, they've produced thousands of these types of of drones. They've been quite effective at at, um, punishing Russian forces in defenses, uh, observing where they are for uh, artillery fire. So not conventional air power, but something improvised. And the other thing that they're doing, and these are the sensational attacks that you see now, uh, being launched against Moscow, closing down Russian air travel, uh, closing down the airports, going after strategic bases where there are, are strategic bombers located, going after other critical infrastructure, and that's the strategic element of the of the um, the this drone warfare capability. But it is not the conventional air power that the U.S. and the Western militaries have come to rely on with fleets of F-16s, F-22s, F-35s that are able to achieve air dominance, and uh, basically allow the, the troops to move unimpeded, U.S. troops to move in unimpeded wars. That's not the case. The, the Russians have advanced air defense capabilities that wouldn't even allow um, you know, anything but maybe the most advanced air platforms like stealth fighters to fly. So this is a, just a very different war than what the West has experienced, certainly very different than the war in, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Different than than Iraq, um, you know, in the in the major combat operations phase, Alex. To what extent has Ukraine been able to fortify its air defenses? Well, so Ukraine, um, through you know, almost a miraculous uh, 
miraculously effective capability was able to to first preserve its air, indigenous air defense capabilities. These are Soviet era air defenses. Uh, they were not destroyed on the on the ground. They were not destroyed in a lightning phase of the war in the first hours, the way the Russians had expected. The Ukrainians had already perceived the uh, oncoming Russian onslaught and repositioned them. That impeded Russia from flying uh, freely over Ukrainian skies. Immediately, the Russians were taking losses and they were they self-restricted themselves in uh, flying their uh, fighters into Ukrainian cities, going after critical infrastructure, going after uh, command and control. Those types of things were not in play for the Russians. That has been further enabled by the provision of advanced Western air defense systems. Patriots, NASAMs, these are very, very capable. Iris-Ts that are coming from um, Germany, these are extremely capable systems that basically allow, not, not only do they not allow Russian fighters to fly through, bombers to fly through, but they really reduce Russia's ability to uh, attack with masses of cruise missiles, with masses of drones. And the more of these systems that come in, the less uh, the less of the kinds of attacks that we saw today, you know, against this this uh, urban civilian population, the less of those things that we'll see. The problem is that Ukraine has to make choices. It's the largest country in Europe. It has to make choices about defending critical infrastructure. It has to make choices about defending strategic targets like the capital of Kiev, a major bases, uh, oil infrastructure and gas infrastructure to keep the economy going. Airfields with planes that are able to launch, you know, these these long range systems that have been donated by the West, these, um, you know, these storm shadows and, and so forth. So in so doing, it has to take some risk somewhere. And unfortunately, that use uh, tends to be smaller cities, frontline uh, formations that don't get the kind of defenses uh, that they need. The more capability that the West provides, the, the less Russia is going to be able to be able to conduct these kinds of terror attacks. You you were in Ukraine just a couple of months ago. Um, and just briefly, just, just first thing that uh, impressed you when you were there that maybe surprised you a little bit seeing it uh, on the ground or hearing of it firsthand. Secondly, something that caused you concern about your visit. So I've been there twice since, uh, since last we spoke. Um, Last year was a much more precarious uh, situation. Things were, you know, we were past the, the Battle of Kiev, uh, but the Ukrainian, the Russians had kind of regained their footing and had started to make gains in the east. Uh, and there were still, uh, there, it was months before these liberations around um, Kharkiv area, around Kherson, and the Ukrainians haven't hadn't demonstrated yet their their offensive capability. I came. I went back there a year later. Um, the mission included delivering a whole bunch of aid to Ukrainian uh, military formations, cold weather gear for the coming winter, and uh, had a chance to, talk, to engage with the entirety of the the uh, Ukrainian national security establishment. And in, in exchange of views, I offered them my views. They told me what was going on because I also talked to the White House and the Department of Defense and so forth. Uh, I'd say the biggest thing was the population in general is probably more optimistic than the military, uh, than the military professionals. The population has been, uh, has in a way been trained to believe that Ukrainians will work miracles. Uh, I think that that's true. The Ukrainians have in fact kind of worked miracles on the battlefield, destroying the second uh, most powerful military in the world. 
but uh, they're cautious. And the reason is that they're dealing with a formidable enemy and massive defenses. What the Ukrainian leadership uh, told me is they actually are much better and more effective at contending with Russia's most elite fighting formations, airborne forces. This is the battles around Bakhmut that when they were taking ground away from uh, Russian airborne forces, um, but with less prepared defenses than they are in the south where this, this so-called Surabikin line was established with massive uh, minefields and uh, and trenches and and all sorts of different fortifications. They're having, a, it was a much, much slower go until recently they started to accelerate some of those gains. So I think that they are um, cautiously optimistic. I think it's a razor's edge to a certain extent. Uh, you know, let's say if if the, the US and the West had done more to provide the engineering assets that were promised because there's a difference between promises made and promises delivered. Um, if there was more done with regards to providing advanced aircraft uh, instead of doing this, you know, having this conversation about F-16s now, this conversation should have occurred a year ago. The Ukrainians would have been in a much more com comfortable position to be able to wage this offensive. I think it's going to be pretty close. And I think it's unfortunately, the Ukrainians are not going to be in a position to Make dis land decisive blows against the Russian military, which means that this war is likely to continue on through 2024. We have another year and a half of war. Alex, let's talk about what, what a victory would look like. You, you signed on to that statement with 46 total policy advisors, including yourself, calling for supplying significantly more weapons to Ukraine, affirming Ukraine's entry into NATO. But um, you know, what does a victory look like? That letter mentions, um, if I'm not mistaken, return to 1991 borders for Ukraine, which you know means Crimea is part of part of Ukraine, not Russia. And and I'm just trying to imagine how does Putin tolerate a loss of that extent? And and how do you see him reacting if that was to be achieved? So uh, Putin's biggest imperatives are regime survival. Uh, he is more than prepared to live and fight another day than risk his regime in, 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 in a major way. Uh, if if push came comes to shove, and again, unfortunately, it's not going to be the end of this offensive by the Ukrainians. But when when the Ukrainians do breach this land bridge, get to the Sea of Azov, and cut off Crimea, and start making uh, their way towards liberating territory, including threatening Crimea. Putin is going to have to make some tough decisions. Does he want to roll back his, uh, you know, extremely inflated views of what Russia controls? They annexed four different territories in addition to Crimea um, just recently. This in the in uh, in the spring they they annexed four territories. He's going to have to accept that he does. He runs out of military capacity to continue to fight. The alternative is attempt to mobilize the entirety of, of Russia's society, draw on hundreds of thousands of troops, and deal with the consequences, the, the internal instability, when we know there is already a level of significant level of internal stability. So does he want to do it? No, but he he might be in a position where he has no choice. But, and what, but he isn't... That, what he does in that case is he negotiates what he can hang on to. I think I wrote a, a piece in Foreign Affairs, actually, uh, uh, several months back, about saying that the end game is frankly uh, a negotiation about him attempting to retain Crimea. So he could give up um, most of what he wants, but his uh, ultimate objective is to, to try to hang on to Crimea 
and retain control of, uh, over Crimea. And that is an acceptable outcome for him. And do you think President Zelensky would accept that? Because hasn't he said publicly that that he wouldn't agree to that? So there's a, you know, there's kind of the, the uh, forward-facing posturing, and then there's the reality. I think the fact is that President Zelensky would be loath to accept those conditions. And I think if he did, he would do it under certain conditions where Russia at least partially and temporarily demilitarizes uh, Crimea. So it's not a consistent thorn um, and a security threat to Ukraine. There has to be some sort of template where there is a referendum in Ukraine that includes people that were uh, uh, forced to flee Ukraine after 2014. You know, imagine a Minsk uh, type format, except it would be in in favor of Ukraine and and in a position where Ukraine uh, has the ability to see a path towards peacefully regaining control of Crimea. For Putin, this would be an acceptable outcome because he doesn't uh, Crimea wouldn't be immediately under threat. Uh, he would be able to you know believe that he has he has the means to retain Crimea for for years at minimum. And I think there is a compromise to be had over Crimea. It is not anywhere near an optimal uh, uh, situation, primarily because it would still be a security threat to to Ukraine. But it would be ex- probably acceptable, and because it would end the a war that's inflicting thousands of casualties and uh, you know killing the best and brightest in Ukraine. And on the Russian side, and perhaps I have a caricature of Vladimir Putin in my mind, but I, I it seems to me his regime is so is so coupled to a narrative of him as the strong man. And so with a setback that you're talking about as the ultimate outcome of this war, how does how does he fend off people who would be rivals, for example, perceiving him as deeply weakened as a result of, of this kind of a setback, even if Russia retains Crimea? So that, that, that's an interesting um it's a bit of an interesting theory that a recent events have kind of uh, proven to be maybe a, a bit flawed or, or um, overly simplistic. I, I, I hope that didn't sound entirely provocative. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly so, don't take it personally. Yeah. So, so the reason I say this is that uh, Putin is the undisputed ruler of Russia. Um. He is not really fundamentally challenged. He has not started to to leverage the repressive tools of the Russian security state. There are, you know, the the capacity for camps and suppression is vast. He hasn't really had to face uh, any significant protests. There were relatively mild protests when the war started and uh, uh, the Russians suppressed suppressed those protests, those political protests brutally. Putin continues to enjoy quite a bit of popularity. Uh, he's still perceived as as a strongman, so he's not. I mean, he, between his his support and the fact that he hasn't even tapped his repressive uh, potential, he's not under enormous amounts of pressure. Even if he has to okay. wield back some of his objectives, but there's another well, key component here. And I wrote this article in in um, the Daily Beast just to, uh, you know I guess a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was a hot take on Prigozhin and, and the murder of Prigozhin. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about how Prigozhin factors yeah. into this. So, so this is this is an interesting component here. Prigozhin embodied the threat from the ultra nationalists, the war hawks, the folks that wanted Putin to do more. And Prigozhin, in uh, challenged a system where you know, uh, Putin 
His elite circle included the Minister of Defense, one of his closest allies, and the, the Chief of the General Staff. And in challenging the system, Putin basically ultimately, uh, you know, after letting things get out of control, Prigozhin with his march and seizure of, of Rostov and the Southern Military District Headquarters, his march towards Moscow, Putin had to react. He had to kind of sue for peace. He had to have Lukashenko moderate the, the conversation. Weeks later, or actually, no, correction, two months later, almost to the day, uh, I think it was to the day, Putin had Prigozhin murdered. And at the same time, he had Servikin fired. He had other war hawks like uh, Igor Gherkin, the guy that, you know, this colonel that led the the, upright, the, um, the war effort in 2014, arrested. Other propagandists have been arrested. Ultra-nationalist propagandists have been uh, arrested. So he is cracking down on the, this far-right faction that has been critical of his conduct of the war. There is no left-leaning, you know, liberal faction that he has to contend with. He really has to suppress the the, the ultra right, and he has a lot of freedom of maneuver. So what he's done in a way is he's kind of a uh, setup, uh, uh, expanded his bandwidth, expanded his his options to to pivot in any number of different directions, like he did when Pagosian was marching marching on the, the capital. He said he denounced Pagosian in the morning as a, as a traitor and a criminal. And then uh, I pardoned him, you know, uh, later on or a day later. He is able to turn on a dime because he's unchallenged. He's, again, still popular and unchallenged. So we, we I think we overstate the real threats to, to Putin, even if he has to do a drastic about face with this war effort in Ukraine. All right. Critics of U.S. financial support of Ukraine argue it's unrealistic that Ukraine is really going to be able to retake the territory seized by Russia. And and so you've got many people who are arguing that there should be negotiations now with Putin, that that, that is, is the time to do it. What's your response to that? To those who say, you know, $24 billion more is being asked. And, you know, this this is the appetite is not here in the long term to keep funding Ukraine. So first of all, I uh, the every uh, bit of polling, and I look at it carefully, still support uh, suggests overwhelming support for Ukraine. Um, the the a lot of these polls are about the way you answer. You ask a question. You ask a question with a a lot of pollsters ask a question with a desired outcome. There's a client that's looking for a particular kind of narrative to draw on. So, but the uh, an analysis of the polls themselves shows overwhelming support. For Ukraine, uh, it's it's bipartisan. Even with kind of the capture of of uh, the Republican establishment by Trumpism, it's Ukraine remains quite popular. So I think what you're what we're contending with is uh, a, a fact. Couple of factions. One are the uh, kind of the Trumpist wing that wants to cut and run uh, on Ukraine because that's the the temperament of the president. And there's a narrative around, you know, Russia is the good guy, Ukraine is the bad guy. It's a very kind of a bizarre uh, uh, view of the world. And then there is another uh, faction that is highly invested in this notion that somehow we could quickly come around to a negotiated solution. You have to have willing parties in that negotiation. The U.S. does not set the terms, cannot dictate the terms. It is politically untenable for the for the U.S. to to withdraw support from Ukraine. Certainly, a Biden administration can't do that without taking a huge amount of hit, heat because of the, of the public support for Ukraine. So then, how do you actually materialize this this negotiation? 
Putin has zero appetite to negotiate. He keeps his his um, rhetoric is entirely grandiose. He continues to double down on Ukraine being populated by Nazis. He had this whole narrative just within the past couple of days about Zelensky, you know, being Jewish, but it's still a Nazi state and so forth. And they, the Russians haven't given up on this idea of, of conquering Ukraine. Reality hasn't quite set in. And the Ukrainians are feeling relatively comfor- comfortable, like I said. So how do you go about actually neg- uh, uh, driving that kind of negotiation? It's unrealistic. Now, to the other side of this uh, argument, whether it's worth, uh, whether it's in U.S. interests, uh, I contend that it's it is probably the most important investment we can make in our security. It buys us deterrence for China. I'm potentially waging war in Taiwan. I think most analysts would agree that there is a follow-on, a knock-on effect from China, from this war and the uh, Western support for Ukraine, and the deterrent value that has on China and the cost that China would suffer if it um, pursued a, a war against Taiwan. Both because we would jump in is the idea well, that we no, would because, defend Taiwan. Well, for a couple of different reasons. One is it it is unsure that it could win militarily. If if Russia can't win in Ukraine, how is uh, China going to conduct conduct a successful amphibious operation? Two, the the sanctions, and three, of course, the war uh, or war with the West. Those are those ap- aspects are all deterrents. It there there's also a deterrent, frankly, on um, other aggressive regimes that believe in what might makes right and the ability and the willingness to use force. So those are kind of big picture. Then there's the undergirding of the international order, the rules-based international order that believes in this idea, you know, that that uh, that countries don't attack other countries for territorial acquisition. It's a, it's a rule that's kind of been fundamental and held since uh, after World War II. It was why the U- UN was established. But the most practical and most important one, yes, we support you know the humanitarian cause of supporting democracy over uh, uh, fighting off authoritarianism. But for U.S. security, raw gains for U.S. security, it's pennies on the dollar. We've provided about 3% of U.S. defense budget to Ukraine, and the benefit has been destruction of 50% of of Russia's combat power. We put in tens of billions of dollars to contend with the reality of having to fight Russia. But now we don't have to because the Ukrainians have destroyed the Russian military. So all those investments that we continue to pour tens of billions of dollars into, we don't have to worry about it. The Russians have been cleared off the board. We could now apply them to deterring China, apply them to other problem sets. So it's it's a really, really kind of frugal uh, economical contribution to our security to to continue to support Ukraine and make sure that Russia doesn't snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat. What if one of the um, principles of a negotiated agreement was that Ukraine would not join NATO, and and that was something it gave up in exchange for the majority of of the territory seized being returning to, returned to Ukraine control. Would that be an acceptable negotiated deal? It wouldn't be for the Ukrainians, and the reason it wouldn't be for the Ukrainians is because they recognize that there is no there is no such deal to be made with Putin. There is no uh, foregoing. NATO membership that forestalls a future Russian aggression when Russia reconstitutes, rebuilds, and uh, believes it has the strength to attack Ukraine. The only long-term security guarantee for Ukraine is NATO membership. And the reason is that Russia is not not the least bit interested in provoking confrontation with NATO. 
So what we could, uh, the, the, the theory would also be that somehow Russia would just give up its territory for some pledge from, from the Ukrainians for not joining NATO. These, these things, these are just not realistic possibilities. The Russians are not going to trust that the Ukrainians abide by that pledge if they withdraw from Ukrainian territory. And then, then the Ukrainians won't trust the Russians to not attack them in the future. Alex, what, what, what kind of a military gain would Ukraine have to make that Russia would agree to uh, Ukraine joining NATO and that Russia would cede all the territory it seized except Crimea? Well, so there's no military, uh, you know, these are all in uh, opposition to to Russia's wishes. The way this war winds down is not through uh, some sort of kind of um, a negotiation short of the destruction of large portions, portions of the Russian military. The Russians will continue to fight as long as they have the means to do so. Um, if Russia has the ability to hang on to territory, if Russia has the the, uh, the will to mobilize tens of thousands, likely if they do another mobilization, it's going to be hundreds of thousands of troops. They'll they'll keep pushing as long as they can. The only way this starts to wind down is in in a scenario in which Ukraine destroys Russian military combat power, in which Ukraine is able to break Russia's land bridge and put Russia on the horns of a dilemma. The horns of the dilemma would be to lose everything that they have, meaning including jeopardizing Crimea, or start to test the waters for negotiation. I think that there's a reasonable chance that we'll see the, the testing of, of negotiations at the end of this year. And it's going to be on the heels of Ukrainian gains, military gains. It is not going to be because the Russians come to their senses, somehow recognize that you know they can't achieve their, their military aims. They're, they're at least going to hang on until 2024 because for Putin, all the incentives are there to figure out if he gets a more favorable uh, political outcome in the U.S. in the 2024 election with a with a Trump or a DeSantis or something of that nature uh, coming to power. I, I want to get to our viewer questions momentarily, but what are the NATO members' appetites for continuing to assist, uh, even if American political opinion is still behind Ukraine? Uh, there is still wide-ranging support, uh, European support for uh, for the uh, support to Ukraine. Um, I would say that there is a bit of a sea change in perceptions around uh, Eurasia from from European powers, France and Germany. There was an inordinate amount of wishful thinking around uh, the ability to cooperate with Russia uh, and the ability to, and a willingness to sacrifice other relationships including with other regional heavyweights like Ukraine, in order to, to um, uh, ameliorate, to um, ingratiate with Putin to, to achieve these kind of far-fetched uh, political aims. I think the Germans and the French both have a much more uh, sober appreciation of Russia. They have a much more sober appreciation of Putin. And I think the fact is that while they're not willing to do Everything that it takes, they're still uh, Germany still resistant on providing critical capabilities. Um, the appetite for sanctions is not as robust as it probably needs to be. There is no going back to kind of a status quo ante, um, um, you know, a status quo before the war. My doctoral dissertation was on U.S. policy towards uh, Russia and Ukraine since 1991. 
Uh, I'm my simple. My conclusions were quite simple. We had the West as a whole, the U.S. specifically, had some wishful thinking about the uh, what couldn't be achieved with Russia. A purely aspirational or heart, uh, highly aspirational policy on a whole host of different objectives that we could potentially reach with Putin, whether that's climate change, whether that's you know arms control, whether that's uh, security enhancing uh, activities. Those were not going to be in the cards because Putin had a different view of the world. And instead, what we had uh, had to forego is investing in European security, investing in places like Ukraine, especially after the Orange Revolution, where there was a hard pivot towards European integration. And uh, we didn't do that because right. we didn't want to upset um, uh, Putin and Russia. Let's take some viewer questions. Uh, Doug asks, what significance do you ascribe to the removal of Ukrainian Defense Minister Reznikov? And how endemic is corruption in Ukraine? So uh, corruption is a uh, perennial problem in Ukraine. It's been a challenge for Ukraine for decades. In part, one of the reasons, uh, you know, one of the legitimate rationales for why the U.S. underinvested in Ukraine was because of uh, corruption, and the Ukrainians were oftentimes, especially early on, prior to the Orange Revolution, particularly unreliable partners. They couldn't be trusted um, to be good stewards of of our partnership or our resources. Uh, but the country has made that's all. All that is to say that that is in Ukraine's past. Ukraine has made major strides in uh, attempting to root out some corruption. Huge strides since 2014, uh, major reforms. Uh, President Zelensky has, uh, has taken uh, pretty major steps also. There are still uh, entrenched uh, interests there, oligarchs that control swathes of the economy, um, corruption you know, within the, the, the uh, officialdom is a problem, but it's not the same as it was, and, and the country's making well, progress. And so do you think... That's, that's just, oh, the, just the first part of it. So the... The reason, you know, so corruption isn't the only reason uh, that Reznikov uh, was was removed. Um, there have been some scandals. There have been a couple of scandals percolating over uh, food prices and food purchases. But you, uh, under this war, Zelensky has made it clear that Ukraine will be a good steward of Western resources. There has not been any major scandal. Shockingly, there has not been any major scandal with the donation of, of Western resources, whether it be US or European to Ukraine. So there have been some internal corruption scandals. There have been, uh, I think, mishandling of civilian donated funds, humanitarian funds, but the government dollars that have come through have been scrupulously accounted for. Uh, so I think that's that's only a small portion. Corruption is not the real crux of uh, why Reznikov was, uh, was forced out, I think. That we're, you know, we we are seeing a kind of a, a and potentially a, a effort to improve the leadership of the Ministry of Defense uh, through another uh, trusted agent. Elaborate, please. So, uh, the, you know, the um, the incoming Minister of Defense is pretty well regarded. He has uh, he's a fluent English speaker. He is a um, considered a uh, a honorable businessman. He has a significant ties in the U.S. He uh, funds a, a program at Stanford that my friend Mike McFall 
manages um and he is uh, uh, by many accounts i've only had very um transactional interactions with him but he by many accounts he is considered to be a very effective leader and manager so i think that i think you know i don't want to say anything um negative about reznikov but i think this is intended to be an upgrade for the leadership of the ministry of defense and do you think the fact that those procurement scandals that you talked about earlier did come to light and Zelensky apparently acted uh, you know, against uh, the people responsible, do you think that sent an effective message about corruption or is this just is that they're always going to be people looking to make a, a buck unethically? I, I think it's both. I think the fact is that uh, this is part of the way people were brought up, um, on, you know, especially the older generation uh, about uh, graft is kind of just part of the system. Uh, so there's going to until that it works its way out of the system, out of the system, out of the body of, of Ukraine, it's going to be an issue. I think the fact is that the Ukrainians are dealing with this harshly. Uh, there are people that are kind of criticizing whether uh, Zelensky should move in this direction, but there's an idea of making. Um, corruption a national security offense elevating the, the the punishment for corruption i think that's supposed to be supposed to warn off other corrupt agents other corrupt practices but i think uh i think he was you know obviously trying to send the message that ukraine is making strides is, is improving its governance and um you know there's more to be done i don't want to understate that the, the mountains to climb but the ukrainians have made major strides and frankly, if I was an investor, you know, if I again, uh, maybe this is a good testament to where Ukraine is. I would seriously be looking at opportunities to invest in Ukraine. Uh, it's challenging. You have to be very careful. But I think this is now there's an opportunity to invest in Ukraine, certainly in the re- reconstruction phase. Uh, we have Susan who asks, what impact will the grain embargo have on Russia's standing in the developing world? So. Russia will uh, will probably hold on this grain embargo like they did uh, uh, before when they when they embargoed grain before the grain deal. They thought that somehow that was going to generate pressure on Ukraine, generate pressure on Ukraine to negotiate, generate pressure on the West to pressure Ukraine to negotiate. That obviously didn't work out very well. Um, there ended up being a grain deal. Russia is now uh, backed out of that grain deal. I think. Uh, it could. Uh, there's a bit of um, there's a bit of latitude for Russia to do that for another month or two become, before it really becomes an, an acute issue. Uh, there is a high degree of uh, grain flow by land through uh, rail networks, and Russia is is definitely selling its grain at a premium. But I I would be surprised if there is not another grain deal in the late fall kind of early winter time frame just in time uh but the right now the russians are putting the squeeze on to uh, maximize profits uh, to maximize pressure the standing for russia in in the it is one of the mysteries of uh russia's operations in the the uh, southern hemisphere that they are still considered a good actor by so many different countries in africa uh in south asia uh, that somehow the Russians, uh, a propaganda machine has been so effective as to build Russia as anti-colonial when it was probably one of the proto-Columbia, uh, proto-Columbia, uh, proto-colonial, kind of one of the first European colonial uh, empires. It just did it 
domestically in Eurasia, colonizing vast tracts of Eurasia. But somehow that narrative carries weight because uh, a lot of these countries that they have good relationships with had to deal with their own colonial legacies with Western European powers. And uh, Russia supported them in their struggle for to fend, uh, fend off colonialism. So some there's there's still some goodwill. I think it's one of those things. It's it's perishable, uh, and, and um, with an expiration date. And I don't see Russia enjoying th- this kind of popular sentiment, okay, you know, indefinitely. But um, for the time being, it still still has that. U.S. officials say North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is likely going to meet with Putin next week in Vladivostok. Um, Russia needs more ammunition, which North Korea could potentially supply. And this leads to a question from Sid, who's watching. Sid asks, besides Iran and North Korea, what other countries are assisting Russia? Is China? Uh, China is not assisting um, Russia in a major kind of way. First of all, I guess the biggest thing that uh, China is doing um, is it has a robust trade with uh, Russia. Um, oil and gas flows are uh, expanding, and that uh, bolsters the Russian budget to continue to wage war. Uh, there are dual-use technologies that come across from China to Russia that uh, help the uh, military-industrial complex produce resources, but it's not. It's not like the West um, and its support of Ukraine. It's not in the in the form of direct military material. There, uh, there is abundant evidence that you know, kind of non-lethal uh, equipment has made it in with regards to body armor and helmets and things of that nature. But it's not, you know, bullets. It's not munitions and things of that nature. China hasn't gone there yet. Uh, it would obviously be disastrous if it did. Really, Russia is relying on um, Iran. It is looking to expand its uh, military trade relationship with um, with the DPRK, with North Korea. Uh, and that could actually have, it probably won't be decisive, but it could have an impact on the battlefield. Okay. The North Koreans have massive stockpiles of artillery ammunition. Uh, and, that, and that's what the Russians are starting to run short of. Alex, I oh, have several really excellent questions from viewers. So let's let's we'll try and take them as rapid as rapidly as we can. Philip asks, will the F-16s that Ukrainians will soon get make a difference? Uh there is no silver bullet. Uh, every but every bit of capability is important. The F-16s will w- with the proper armaments will allow uh the Ukrainians to push back Russian air power further behind the border. It'll inhibit Russia from using its planes to bomb Ukrainian troops. It'll provide air cover, will about allow Ukraine to destroy Russian helicopters, which will be critical. Those helicopters, Russian helicopters are attacking Ukrainian armored formations. And that with the air defense capabilities will allow Ukraine to get better command of the skies. It's an important capability okay. in conjunction with, with a bunch of other things that we're providing. Rose asks, is the Wagner group uh, of any military significance now? And what about their actions elsewhere? Uh, it is um, it is no longer a factor on the battlefield in Ukraine. Um, it is still going to be a major nuisance in Africa and in Syria, um, basically acting as mercenaries supporting authoritarian regimes. But it's not going to be uh, a factor uh, in the war between Russia and Ukraine. Do we know of, who's running Wagner? 
Uh, well, ultimately, it's the Ministry of Defense that's running Wagner now. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Mike asks, what impact would a Trump victory in 2024 have on the U.S.'s posture with Europe? Uh, it would be a disaster. I think it's well documented that that Trump has an eye on withdrawing the U.S. from NATO, not because NATO is not paying its dues, but because this has been, you know, this is one of those, uh, like, you know, I didn't lose the 2020 election uh, mantras. Uh, NATO is bad. You know, there's not a lot of reason behind it, but he hasn't has had that this is an important thing to do. Uh, and I think it's going to, real. it may, you know, it's hard to say kind of irreversibly damaged because our countries have long-term relationships, but it's going to have a huge impact on U.S. relationships with democracies around the world. Um, let's see, we have a question. Uh, Tom asks, do we have the capacity to produce munitions for us and for Ukraine's needs? We have a uh, a large military industrial uh, enterprise. We never planned to arm ourselves for major combat operations as well as a uh, ally to um, to wage a major war against another superpower. So we have to make some adjustments to our industrial base. Our industrial base had, had to do that, frankly, no matter what, because we were under-resourcing munitions, we were under-resourcing critical capabilities. So uh, Ukraine has kind of pointed the way that we need to make uh, uh, some, some major investments in our own uh, defense apparatus. But we can do both. The reason is that we're a $24 trillion economy. We're the most powerful country in the world. And we are buying security for ourselves by supporting Ukraine. We are buying security for NATO and for our most important alliance, which is with Europe, our, our massive trading partner. Uh, so it is a it is an extremely important investment in U.S. security to continue to support Ukraine with anything and everything that they need to win. Robert asks, what's your estimate of the range of Ukrainian casualties? It's a, it's a very sensitive issue, but um, it's tens of thousands of casualties. Uh, the Ukrainians don't often like to talk about it, but it's a, probably approaching the six-figure range. Elizabeth asks, if Putin falls, would chaos in Russia be worse than under Putin's leadership? It's hard to imagine how it could possibly be worse. Uh, we went from uh, from a ruler that's been in charge of Russia for 23 years with peaceful relations uh, to degrading to the to the brink of uh, uh, you know at least Putin regularly threatening and his elites regularly threatening nuclear war. I'm not sure how 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 much worse it can get. I think the fact is that um, you have the same fundamental constraints on anybody else that comes into Russia. There is going to be an urgency for regime survival. So having a direct confrontation with NATO is mutually sure destruction. So I, I think, you know, a, a Russia after Putin may not change fundamentally, but it's going to get better because it would be a weaker leader. It will be a leader that has uh, less control over the uh, over and less repressive tools potentially to allow the at least the development of alternative factions and maybe even liberal democracy. That's a long ways away. That's, you know, a generation away. But there is no possibility of that under Putin. Post-Putin, I think that possibility could start to emerge. Robert asks a personal question. What is your brother doing? Uh, so he found himself in much the same situation I did. 
in a lot of ways validating my decision to kind of, uh, you know, I was forced out after my promotion was delayed. I could could have stayed on and, and held up the promotions for hundreds and hundreds of officers. I decided that wasn't gonna, uh, that that would be uh, harmful to my friends, but also to to U.S. national security. So I left the military service and allowed the promotions to move forward. Eugene stayed on another year. He was uh, kind of ostracized, banished to kind of a far corner, uh, uh, and um, with really little prospects of of advancement. The way our, our careers were were moving before uh, Trump um, Trump corruption. So. He's out. He's working with me on a bunch of humanitarian projects. I've raised $11.5 million for Ukraine. I'm working on uh, trying to, uh, to advance demining efforts, veterans care in Ukraine, um, a whole host of different projects. And he's working with the State Department for Russian war crimes accountability. So, you know, he's doing OK. Uh, a final question, um, this related, Carl asks, your thoughts on Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's hold on military promotions? So I alluded to it, uh, you know, uh, briefly. I withdrew from the military. I was fired by Trump. My promotion was impeded. I withdrew, you know, for, uh, uh, because it was part of my duty. I mean, I wasn't going to impede uh, a bunch of promotions. Tommy Tuberville is doing the exact opposite. He's holding up hundreds and hundreds of military promotions, jeopardizing um, U.S. national security, undercutting readiness, affecting soldiers, spouses, children that can't that can't settle into schools now. Potentially, potentially have to uh, can't take the jobs that they were had arranged, and he's doing this because he's politicizing the military. That guy's a dirtbag. And I take it personally because I know friends that are affected by this. It makes me extremely angry to hear him say things like it's not affecting redness. It is horrible. But I think the U.S. is is moving to turn the page. I am optimistic about 2024. I think there is a broader rejection of um, of extremism. And I'm doing my part to contribute to the effort to make sure that we have a democracy and that we could turn the page on Trump and Trumpism, and this country continues to move forward towards that more perfect union. And if you don't mind, we'll let that stand as your close. That's that's a, a, a very strong way to wrap up our conversation. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on America to Crossroads. It's been so enlightening, the experiences that you've had that you could bring home to us, and your analysis along with that experience. Very meaningful. Thank you very much. We appreciate thank you, Larry. it. I appreciate it. Excellent conversation.